Well, let's uh, read our scripture this morning, and then we'll go on from there. So, uh, we're talking about sanctification, and this is sanctification part two. That's a real original title, right? So, uh, let's go to Philippians 2, verses 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let's bow our our head for our word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we ask for your spirit just to illuminate your words. Uh, May they sink in deep. May they change our hearts. May they change our lives. May we serve you more fully as we go forth uh, from here. Again, we praise you for this morning and the opportunity to worship you freely. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, um, I talked a little bit last week about how I got interested in this subject. And, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, I don't know if I'm more of an auditory or a somebody that learns more by reading, but if I've got time to kill and sometimes when I'm at work, I've got two screens and I'll be playing videos and... and uh, I was watching YouTube videos of, uh, and on sanctification, and man, I watched MacArthur, and he was doing another sermon. It just gets you riled up. You're just ready to go out and hit the streets, and um, um, it's just amazing. Um, I, think, I think this subject, next to salvation, is really critical, um, and uh, at least MacArthur would say, and, I, and I, I'm not sure I would disagree. In fact, I can tell you I wouldn't disagree. I think salvation and sanctification has really uh, gotten distorted in the American or Western church. And so I hope, not my words, but I hope the words that we're going to study today, God's Word, will help give us a clear understanding of what that's supposed to look like. Um, So last week we picked apart verse 12, and we covered man's responsibility regarding sanctification. Um, and we, we covered several issues regarding this. Um, initially, we covered salvation and that that is God's work. Um, and I'll, I'll introduce a term, I'll explain a little bit more, but it's called monergism or monergistic. And that just basically means that this is all God's work. Salvation is God's work. Um, and, and that is um, God drawing us to himself. And uh, we talked about Jesus' con- um, discussion with Nicodemus and how he stressed the need to be born again. And like I said earlier, the American or Western gospel has been, been distorted or reduced salvation to a mental assent that Jesus is Savior. And I read to you, and I'm not going to read the whole quote again, but I read to you what costly grace was uh, described by Bonhoeffer, who is one of the great theologians of the last century. And he talked about cheap grace and how that that's been pervasive in the, the Western church. But he talks about what is opposite of that, and that's called costly grace. And I'll read to you just an excerpt. I won't read the whole thing again. It says, such grace is costly because it causes us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies a sinner. 
Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Quote, unquote, ye were bought with at a price. And what a cost God cost. God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son did too dear to pay a price for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So we're going to do a multimedia. This is a little different. Um, and so I've you know, I told you I'm watching all these videos, and once you start looking at something on YouTube, you all know this, uh, but just for some of those folks that might, like the two people in here. So if you start looking at subjects on YouTube, then it starts queuing you up similar uh, subjects. And the next thing I know, I'm watching this this uh, video uh, from Paul Washer uh, on salvation. And uh, um, and it, it, the, the, the title of the video is, Are You Really, really Saved? And so it's, it's 11 minutes, and I want us to watch that before I go forward. Our salvation is found in only one place, the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. I have spent over 30 years serving my Lord. I have suffered terrible things. I have lost. I have been in danger in mountains and in valleys. I have suffered fevers in jungles. I have walked through malaria pits. I have been both loved and hated, hunted and applauded. I have worked at starting orphanages and taking care of street children and living with street people and all these years add nothing to my salvation. If I died right now, I would go to heaven for only one reason. Two thousand years ago, the Son of God shed His blood on Calvary for sinners. That's my only hope. That thief on that tree and I have everything in common. There is only one foundation of our salvation, our vicarious substitute, our atonement, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And until you understand it, until you abandon all hope in self, all hope in obedience, all hope in the fulfillment, your fulfillment of law, all hope in your own spirituality, all hope in your own mysticism, until you abandon all of it and throw yourself on the one rock that is Christ, you are not Christian. If salvation was 99.99% Jesus and 0.01% us, we would all be damned. We have only boast, one boast, one boast. We do boast, but it's one boast. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. There are people marching in the streets demanding justice who have no justice or righteousness of their own. There are people gathered in politically conservative unions and auditoriums 
seeking a conservative answer to every one of our problems, and they too are guilty. The whole world is guilty. There's none righteous. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. One of the most frequent answers I hear is that I'm good. I'm going to heaven because I'm good. Compared to Hitler, if Hitler's your standard, you may have a boast there. But if the thrice holy God is the standard, and he is, your boast has been removed. Look what Paul says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. What's Paul's purpose? What's the law's purpose? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. But herein lies the great problem. Man's self-righteousness. So first of all, the greatest evidence that someone is truly Christian is they have abandoned all hope in self. All hope in their own righteousness. There's only one hero in this story. And it's Jesus Christ, our elder brother, who has triumphed where all of us have failed. That is the Christian message. It is not ethics. It is not morality. Christianity is not primarily a moral or an ethical religion. It has a morality and it has an ethic that is the highest of the highest. But that's not what it's about. Is that It is a redemptive religion. We are saved not because of our work on behalf of God, but God's work on behalf of us. And even the smallest boast of self-righteousness in Christianity is blasphemy. And it's a perversion of the gospel. And how goes it with you? Do you have assurance before God tonight because you're a good man? Raised in a Christian home? You don't do what others do? You know not Christ. If you were to walk up to a genuine Christian and begin to applaud them and say, you know, if anybody's going to heaven, you are. I mean, you're, you've done this and done this and done this. You're such a good person. You know what the Christian would do? would become so nauseous so as to vomit, would scream out and say, away from me, enough with this blasphemy. Don't associate it with my name. I have one hope. Jesus Christ died for sinners and I have thrown myself on him. What you need to understand, the person who believes in Christ believes in Christ because God has done a miraculous thing in them. It's reality. It's biblical fact. They have become a new creature. It is described in the Old Testament in this way. Prior to the work of the Spirit, prior to the work of regeneration, you had a heart of stone. It was dead to God and alive to every wicked stimuli. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, that heart of stone is turned into a heart of living flesh that can respond to God and will respond to God. Recreate it. Paul says, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. And yes, it means that if, if, if the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart, you are really ontologically, you are a new creature. 
You're not the same person that you were. You're a new creature, recreated in righteousness. And a new creature is going to live a different way. A new nature produces new will, new action. You will know them by their fruits. Have we truly come to know Christ? We're saved by faith alone. But how do we know we truly believe? What is the evidence of conversion? God has revealed to us who he is, his character. And God has shown us his will. So anyone who says they're a Christian and yet they walk in a manner that contradicts what God has revealed in the scriptures about his nature and about his specific will, they cannot have assurance of having come to know Christ. What is one of the greatest evidences that a person is a Christian? It's not that they're sinless, but that they have a new relationship with sin. It's like before sin and the unbeliever is walking arm in arm, hand in hand in the, in the same direction. At conversion, there's a change. They may lock arms every once in a while, but opposing directions. It's a struggle. It's a fight. So one of the greatest evidences is a new relationship with sin, but also along with that, the result of what happens when we discover that we are in sin. When the Holy Spirit reveals to us that we are in sin, how we react to that is one of the great evidences whether or not we're converted. The true believer acknowledges the true believer, the true Christian is the only person in the world that's not self-righteous. Because he is seeing his sin. The closer you come to Christ, the more light of Scripture you see, the more you're going to see the real you. And so the Christian life is this amazing, it's almost like a paradox. It's hard to describe. Because what happens? As you begin to walk in the Christian life, your Christian life is basically one of repentance and faith. Ongoing repentance and faith. So as you're walking and growing in maturity and you're seeing more and more of God, you're also seeing more and more of you. Which results in a deeper repentance, a deeper sorrow and a deeper mourning. But that mourning does not turn to despair. It is not a repentance unto death. Why? Because the more light you see of God and the more you see your sin, also the more you see the grace of God in the person of Christ and you rejoice. God has always been love. Always been love. And from the very beginning, the commandment to love was there. Even in the law, even in the book of Deuteronomy, love is not new command that in Christianity love is not a thing to everything you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength you shall love your neighbor as yourself it's love young person let, let me let, let me ask you a question what are your friends like 
if your friends love the world, act of the world, and have nothing to do with Christ, and those are the people you're drawn to, you're drawn to them because you're like them. Do not be deceived. So last week, I asked everyone to examine themselves and look at their lives. Do you see qualities that testify of God's Spirit at work in your hearts, in your mind? Such qualities are an inward hatred of sin and a desire to repent of one's sin, an increasing love and appreciation for God's love and His grace and His mercy, an increasing love for God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus as well as an increasing love for his word and his people. In addition, there should be an increasing love to share the hope that lies within us. And that's in 1 Peter 3:15. I want to emphasize that the regenerate individual is changed and cannot help but grow in the Lord. That looks different for each person, but is inevitable. However, there are similarities as we are conformed into Christ's image together. So going back to sanctification, there are three phases we talked about. There's past sanctification. Other words would be positional sanctification, and that's what happens when we're born again. It's called also called justification. And then there's progressive or practical sanctification, or you could call this current sanctification. That's what we're undergoing now. And then there is future sanctification. We also call that glorification, and that's what's going to happen someday when when we have to go to heaven. For reference, when I talk about sanctification, I'm talking about current sanctification, what we're undergoing right now. In addition, we talked about some of the ways that sanctification has gotten distorted. We talked about quietism, uh, and that was really popular back in the 19th century, actually, and in, in kind of started in France. And the uh, mantra was that, let go, let God. And, and some of you, I know I heard this, um, Several of you may have heard this too. Um, let go, let God. I called it Jello theology, where you don't do anything and you just hope God bumps your table and then you wiggle. Um, um, uh, the opposite of that is called activism or pietism, and that's where um, you take God out of the equation and you're totally responsible for your sanctification. Um, and the problem with that, obviously, that ignores God. But it tends to focus more on our outward behavior and not a true change of the heart. Other errors that we talked about include legalism, and that's where uh, one conjures up a lot of man-made rules to put alongside Scripture in addition to Scripture, and we think that we are becoming more like Christ by following a set of rules that aren't necessarily scriptural. And then the last is antinomianism, and that's a big word. uh, anti means against. Uh, the Greek word for law is pneumos, and, uh, and that's where we get nomianism, and so it's against the law. And uh, uh, a sermon I watched yesterday um, on MacArthur, he was just saying that, and, and again, that this is probably the most pervasive heresy in sanctification in the United States. And I talked about this a little bit last week, but, but it's, it's, it's common, maybe not in this fellowship, that people 
think they come to Christ, they make a mental assent that Jesus is their Savior, but their lives are never changed, and they think they can live like the world. And that's obviously not not scriptural. Um, the regenerate man is like David, that loves God's law. And Kendall, I loved what you read today. Where I don't know where she went. She's over there. Hey. Anyway, in Psalm one nineteen, um, in Psalm one verse two, it says, "But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates on it day and night." And just for the record. Um, our goal is not for us to follow the law more perfectly. That seems like, well, that'd be a good goal, right? But our, 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 our goal is to be more like Christ. All right? Now, the two may coincide, but, but our goal is to be more like Christ and not to follow the law. A key principle we mentioned last week, and I'll restate today, is that sanctification is synergistic. Remember, we talked about salvation as monergistic, monogistic, mono meaning one, synergistic, meaning that it is God and man working together for their sanctification, not salvation. All right, let's keep that straight. We covered uh, MacArthur's five points last week describing man's responsibility regarding sanctification, and I'm going to touch on those briefly. Uh, number one, and this is going through verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So number one was understand your example, and that was in the first two words, so then, that referred us back to verses 5 through 8, which describes Christ as our supreme example. Number two is understand that you are loved, and that was in the two words called my beloved. And this is where, where Paul reflected and ultimately was referring to the Father's love for his children. Number three is understand obedience. And that is, in the few words, just as you obeyed. And we looked at the Greek word hupakuo, which means to hear under or literally to heed or conform to a command. Number four was understand personal responsibilities. And this is in verses... 12d, um, you might say, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul wanted to emphasize that o- their obedience was not to him, but unto the Lord. And this reminds us a key thing, and I have to remind myself all this all the time, but we serve an audience of one. Number five is understand the consequences of sin. And that's the last part of the verse where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To have such fear and trembling is more than recognizing our frail and fleshly state, but walking in humility with God. So that is an introduction. Let's go forward in today's lessons, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. First, I have to say that we tend to look at the Bible you know, in, in verses, and maybe one verse at a time. Obviously, we need to look at these two verses together. I want to emphasize you can't functionally work out your salvation in verse 12 without verse 13. God is at work in you. In other words, we can't work out unless God is working in. Christ had much to say about this working in in the book of John as he used the word abide a lot. And the Greek word, root word, I think this has always been interesting, the root word where we get the word abide is meno. And I have no idea if that has to do with the town 
out west to eat or not. I've got to ask somebody someday. But it's the same word, meno. Um, in uh, John 15, it's verses 5 and 7. Those are common verses that we, we all know about. And where Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gathered them and threw them in the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So let's go back to verse 13. And let's look at the first few words and, and kind of pick this apart a little bit. So the first few words is, for it is God. And this talks about God, his person, who he is. And he is the great I am, right? He is, he is the one and only true and living God. Deism, which was common back in the 17th century, in fact, some of our founding fathers were deists. They believed in a creator God, but they didn't think he was involved in the affairs of man. They thought that God basically held the world here, spun it, and he's just looking to see what happens. Um, now, there were founding fathers who were true Bible-believing Christians. Let me say that for the record. But we know that God is a personal God, and he is in, involved in the affairs of man. In 1 John 4, 9 uh, and 10, it says, And this is the love of God was manifest towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love that not we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. In fact, he loved us so much, even when we were his enemies, he died for us. In Romans 5.10, it says, For we were enemies and we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So that's, that's point number one. Point number two is his power. And that's in the words, who is at work? Anything God, God calls us to do, he empowers us to do it. And whether that is obedience or pursuit of holiness or our general part of our sanctification, he gives us the power to accomplish it. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. The word for work is from the word energo, E-N-E-R-G-E-O. That's a Greek word that I probably really messed up. Uh, where we get the word energy. God energizes his children to obey and serve him. Just as we cannot justify ourselves by our flesh, and that's in Romans 3.20, we cannot sanctify ourselves by our flesh, and that's in Galatians 3.3. 3. In addition, in Acts 1.8, he empowers us to make disciples and fulfill the Great Commission. In verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Point three is his presence in you. And that's um, this emphasizes the precept that God is present in us. In fact, Jesus dwells in us. Romans 8, verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. 
And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Also in Galatians 2.20 it states, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then finally in Colossians 1, verse 27, it says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Number four is his purpose, both to will and to work. An essential part of God's work in us is his divine purpose. God's Holy Spirit transforms our will into his and then gives us the power to follow through. The Greek word for work is called is thelo, which means to be resolved or determined. God uses two means to move believers' will. First, he uses a holy or humble discontent which, uh, with the state of or the direction of one's life. An example of this would be Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 5, where he, Isaiah is taken up into the throne room of God. And how did he react to that? He says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then also Paul states in Romans 7, verse 23, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The second means that he uses are holy aspirations to obey and pursue righteousness. This would be the positive side of holy discontent. In Philippians 3, Paul says in verse 12, Not that I have already attained, I am already perfected, but I press on that I may hold of that which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So, Just like we parent, we use negative and positive reinforcements. The Lord disciplines and directs our lives. The last point here is his pleasure, for his good pleasure. Finally, the last precept here is is that our sanctification is for his good pleasure. As we are being increasingly made in the image of Christ, our thoughts, our will, our attitude, our actions are to please him. I used the word last week, which I heard from a speaker, Dr. Dick Swenson, and it was called authenticity, being authentic. And what that looks like is our entire being is changed in such a way that we're not having to put any pretense or acting. or It's just who we are, and we're acting out who we are in Christ. And we are becoming so much like Christ, we are representing Christ to a dying world. Many catechisms uh, begin with a question, and I think, I think I remember the kids going through school here, and they had so one of the classes they had catechisms, and, and what is the first question they ask you? Anybody know that? 
Yeah, what is, the, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In Luke twelve thirty two, it says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So I'm closing here. To summarize, in verse 13, there are five different aspects of God's sanctifying work in us. His person, remember, He's the great I Am. And He's a personal God. Number two is His power. And He sends us a spirit to give us power to live out this calling. We can't do it on our own. You know, it's, and, and if anybody leaves here and thinks that I'm just going to try harder, I think you're going to not have a lot of success. It's got to be done in God's spirit. His purpose, and that's to change our will and empower us. And, you know, God is gentle and he's patient with us, but he is changing our will. And then the last thing is, remember, he's doing this for his good pleasure, for his glory. So in conclusion, we've covered much today and last Sunday. I hope you'll look back on these verses uh, of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. I think they're, they are essential to our growth and development. We have studied uh, what the synergy is between God's children and the Father. And we are to strive. Like around here, you know, Paul use act, uses active, not passive verbs to describe our walk. And we, and we run in such a way, we want to not just finish, but run the way, race well and bring glory to our Father. Um, I wanted to close. Uh, last week I talked about Nate. Nate's here today. And um, um, I made it again without crying to the end. But um, for those that don't, don't know me, um, I'm a miracle walking. Uh, four years ago I was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And nobody survives that. Um, and uh, people ask me what I did, and and uh, I tell them what I did, but I, I always tell them, look, it's because God decided me to leave me here. And uh, there were many lonely days and weeks on the couch um, where I just sat there. I couldn't do anything. I could barely move uh, either through chemo or surgery. And I'm not saying this for empathy. But it really caused me to think about where I was. And I knew I was redeemed. But, but you know, the weird thing was, is I was not necessarily eager to go to heaven. And it seemed foreign to me. And I thought, that's not right. You know, I should be looking forward to seeing my Savior face to face. And so there was just some, some, some stern realities Stark realities that hit me as a part of that. But I think part of that is that it, it has kind of opened my eyes to the seriousness of what we're doing on this earth. And, and God redeemed us uh, to be his light. And uh, every one of us are to be a light to a dark and dying world. And I pray that we would be just that. So uh, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so much. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your spirit. And we, Father, I just pray that we would walk forth, that our lives would be changed. Not because of anything I've said, but, Father, because of your work in our lives. We praise you and we thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.